Let me, uh, let me carry forwards my introductions. I want to introduce you to Jonathan over here. Jonathan is my friend and is the vicar of um, St Andrews in London, where I live, in a place called Earlsfield. And um, he's here today because we're sort of two halves of a, a sort of endeavour within our, within our neighbourhood uh, and an example, if you like, of one picture of how this... Uh, new language of monasticism relates to the parochial life of a church. And um, I just wanted to, uh, to see him and do go and talk to him because he'll have uh, other perspectives to mine on, on that dynamic. But to say that, uh, contrary to popular belief about Southwark, I have found that uh, there's been a huge welcome for things like missional communities from Jonathan and my, my family itself owes him a huge debt of gratitude for his love and care in uh, worshipping at St Andrews. And um, I'm sure we'll come on to uh, looking at the relationship between uh, the parochial life, particularly if you're in an Anglican context. If it's non-Anglican, I think it still translates because you're really talking about a modernist view of the congregation, the gathered people, um, and monasticism and uh, monastic life and how that lives alongside that kind of gathered body. So um, welcome to you, Jonathan. It's great to uh, have you with us. Um, my mother said that um, I have been... Uh, pushing the boundaries since I came out the womb. So I suppose uh, that makes me a pioneer. Um, one argument is because I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck and was trying very hard to get it off me. And so uh, I was used to, from the get-go, sort of wrestling um, with life, quite literally, at that stage. And she actually now says, my middle son called Sonny, is, is very like that, and she says, it's, um, she says it's payback for all the years of having to raise me. Um, but uh, I don't really know if there is a concrete definition to what is a pioneer. I hope we probably do learn more by what we fail in doing than what we succeed in, but if I can give you some narrative from my own life, sort of... 20-odd years just kind of pushing the boundary, shall we say. Uh, uh, hopefully that will give some picture of, of my thoughts on it. Here's where I want to start is, uh, I remember when Barack Obama was uh, uh, elected president. I hesitated there because obviously George Bush, there's some questions as to whether he ever was elected. But Barack Obama, I think, genuinely was elected and... I remember Newsnight doing a special on him and reflecting on whether, uh, because obviously he was the first black president, you know, there was a lot of conversation around could he be a great president? And this was the kind of topic of conversation on this Newsnight special. And one of the things they did was look at one or two other presidents and they actually said there are probably only a couple of presidents in all the 40-something that there have been who you could put that tag on, who, who truly were great in, in, in their endeavour. And they said, interestingly, they said that the, the, the hallmark of what made them great 
was because they redefined the political landscape of their time. They completely redefined uh, the political and therefore social and economic uh, and indeed spiritual landscape of their time. And the two that they referenced were George Washington and uh, Abraham Lincoln. And um, I found this incredible picture, which I wish I could find again. Uh, I have a blog, but I can't remember what the blog name is, so I can never get onto it. But, but um, on my blog is this picture, and it's a really great picture of this uh, tennis pitch uh, with two people either end trying to play tennis with oversized rackets and very small tennis balls. But what's most interesting about... Uh, the court, I think is the correct term, not the pitch, is that it rolls like this the whole way across. And there's the strap line under it that says, redefining the game. And uh, I uh, realised and, and, and went on to discover that it's true not only when you relate this to political life, but indeed in, in sporting life, who are the greats? The greats are usually the people who redefine the discipline of their sport in their time. They changed the way it happened, the way you went about it. And um, I probably think that's the best definition that I can reflect on that is about what pioneering is. It's about seeing what is there and redefining it and reshaping it and reimagining it, as Matt was using that word earlier, and putting your body into that space and your life into that space so that in some way, quite literally as well as prayerfully, you intercede for something else. And something transformative happens that thereafter, uh, the world as we know it and creation is never the same again. And I think that's probably certainly from where I'm sitting, and of course it is a personal interpretation, what a pioneer is. And I say that because I was interested to hear the word entrepreneur come up, because whilst obviously there are different fields of expertise uh, in pioneering, um, I think an entrepreneur is not a pioneer, in the same way that a, a social innovator is not a pioneer. Um, I think what pioneering is, is its own category, whilst there's no doubt you can have pioneers within the world of entrepreneurialism and so forth. Um, let's just illustrate that. Uh, Steve Jobs recently deceased. Many have defined him as a pioneer within the technology world, and I'm, I'm not sure I would necessarily argue with that, but for the sake of splitting hairs, I will. And uh, it is interesting, one of the articles I read about him and Apple was that most of the products that Apple has given to the world were created and imagined by somebody else, some other group, some other person, some other company, be it IBM, an individual, or whatever. There is absolutely no doubt that Steve Jobs was a phenomenal entrepreneur. But whether or not he was the guy who actually redefined the landscape technologically, I think he would probably argue he was not. He had an imagination for, for something, there's no doubt. And I'm not suggesting that if you're not a pioneer, you can't have an imaginative and fertile mind and be creative. Far, far from it. 
but pioneering is really something that probably never can be a corporate expression in, in, by virtue of the fact that my understanding of pioneers, they, they, they nurture things from the bottom up and that generally pioneer activity can be very amateur in the way it's, uh, and I say that in a positive light, in the way that it's formed and that when uh, the pioneering phase is over, it is often the likes of entrepreneurs who take it and make it something, as did Steve Jobs, into something you can give to the masses. And of course, that's a very important role. But probably, if we go back to the Wild West illustration, the people that were most radical out there, we will never hear about because they're probably buried out there somewhere. <laughs> the, the, the reality is that obviously history marks itself by the stories that we hear and potentially the stories we want to talk about. But I, I imagine that there were many who we will probably never know about. So that would be my definition and I've sort of wrestled over that in terms of um, how one relates that, if you like. And I suppose the, the thing that's clinched it for me is thinking that in the end, I think probably Jesus was a very radical pioneer in that he changed the landscape, not only uh, in terms of spiritually of his time, but he changed the whole social, economic, political landscape of his time, which of course is what the gospel should do. You know, if the gospel is only changing the church, then the church has got something wrong with itself. So somehow, if that is uh, the, the, the benchmark, if you like, it's good to look back at Jesus and see, well, how, did, how was Jesus so subversive? Well, he wasn't quiet about this, really. When he was challenged as to how or by what authority he... Um, did what he did, he turned to the temple, the place of uh, sort of corporate worship of its day, and he said, I tell you what, tear down these walls and I will rebuild them in three days. And he was prophetically articulating something, obviously, about his own death and resurrection, but I think more than that, he was demonstrating a sort of subversive nature to being... Uh, a pioneer and in that sense I think we are all pioneers we are a pioneer people if we can use that term but Jesus really uh, demonstrated this in his own life and uh, I think it's fair to say that when you think about the temple and Jesus' comments towards it there is something to be said that uh, if we change a landscape, metaphorically speaking, uh, there is something that you take away as well as something you add. And that isn't to say that we don't believe in building on the tradition of faith, because I think that's important, and to be accountable to the history of faith whether that's in, within the Anglican Communion or, or, or further afield, the, 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 the body of Christ globally. But there is also the need to actually, uh, in change coming, 
some things ending so that other things begin. And I think Jesus really articulates that, obviously, in his own story, in his own life, and particularly within the death, his death and resurrection. I was uh, privileged, I think I would say, to be, I end, by absolute uh, chance, as it may be, if you believe in that sort of thing, um, I was privileged to be in uh, Berlin in, on November the 9th, 1989, and uh, was actually on my way back from Poland and uh, was fascinated to watch this sort of sea of humanity come through this gap in the wall in Berlin and uh, spent two or three days there just participating in the you know, euphoria that was uh, felt and being celebrated. And I uh, stood by this wall, as everybody did, to have your photograph taken to actually say, yes, I really was there. And in fact, I, this is my small claim to fame, I was actually on, I'm on a clip in a U2 documentary, which I was very excited about, actually, and I think my wife's even more excited about, um, in, in uh, this documentary where, of course, U2 at that time went back to Berlin to uh, begin uh, either splitting up or... Uh, redeveloping what eventually became their album Achung Baby and uh, there's some film there and there is actually a picture of me at the wall it's quite fun uh, with hair so you, I can't verify it was me because I don't look like that now but I genuinely promise you and you can ask my mother I did look like that once upon a time um, and I had my photo taken above uh, this strap line that I didn't even realise was there until afterwards and it simply said Walls are not everlasting. Walls are not everlasting. And so, uh, for me, it became a very personal thing in terms of what pioneering is, is to, uh, just as in that political environment, that wall was an offence to uh, democracy and freedom. So, equally, we have to be aware of what walls exist, both literally or otherwise, that we have to be prepared, as a pioneer people, to uh, step against and to bring down. And to my mind, that's uh, part of what the Ministry of Reconciliation is, is that we, we bring something together, but we also let something, you know, as it were, go to waste. And so this idea, Walter Brueggemann, I don't know, if you, if you haven't read his book, I'd encourage you to read it, it's called The Prophetic Imagination. He says that really what the body of Christ exists to do is to critique and to energise hope to the world. And so, obviously, when we, when we, as the people of God, as a pioneer people, are thinking about that, obviously, we also have to be critiquing our own narrative, our own way of being the people of God, not only globally, but probably more importantly, in your own backyard. And for me, that's essentially what I'm always trying to be about in pioneering. And I, I don't really think of it as pioneering. I'm using that term because we use it here, but I, I, I think of it really more in Brueggemann's 
language that we have to critique the way we are and who we are and as is necessary let the life of God do a transformative work in us that we might energize hope through our lives to others and so I think that is in essence certainly what I'm getting about and I've probably had three that I can think of sort of I've been involved with people, uh, you know, people groups who've facilitated different movements at different times over the last 20 years. And probably the three that I would identify with are uh, being part of a sort of youth movement that emerged in the 90s that was really an um, antidote to the decline of young people in the church and being reached by the church. I think, Johnny might remember this, but I think, not that I'm suggesting you're older than me, Johnny, um, but uh, I think 95% fallout were the stats, something like that. You're a stat man. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yes which when you think about it is an awful lot of people over a year and as the years accumulate. And um, we had to, uh, n not, that I, not that I was conscious of this, this is a language that comes with the gift of hindsight, but there's no doubt at the time we were both critiquing that scenario and looking at and finding ways by which we could counteract that and I think that one of the primary ways that we did that was move from what would have been called then closed youth work to open youth work. So uh, up until then, really, uh, from my experience, youth work was a, was a very closed uh, way of uh, doing ministry. If you were appointed as a youth worker to a church, your, your primary role was to look after the young people in the church and to nurture their spiritual life. Uh, and one of the things that we did, and it, it coincided with uh, a sort of social dance movement called the rave culture, which was kind of blowing up all the rules at the time. Um, it coincided with that until the criminal justice bill put an end to that in 1991 and turned it into what you may know now as the club scene. But before that, the rave culture was basically partying everywhere. And it, did, it did have a social agenda, but it also believed that ecstasy was the way to world peace. So it had a slightly warped view of, you know, what the gospel meant. But, but there's no doubt it was attracting not hundreds of people, but thousands and thousands of people. You, I can remember going to raves at the end of the 80s that were lit, there were literally 20,000, 30,000 people turning up, and you would get, um, you didn't have sort of the text world then, but you would get a phone call from somebody who would be phoned by somebody else, and there was this kind of Chinese whisper scenario whereby you would all meet somewhere, usually a motorway pit stop, uh, along the M4 or the M25, and then there would be a convoy that would take you right out into the middle of the boonies and you would have this rave, as they called it. And um, it, was, it was slightly anarchic, but it was also trying to express something about belonging 
I think. There was very much in the heart of it, from my experience, a sense of belonging. And I think that evolved into, with the sort of technology revolution, uh, youth culture also was no longer one-dimensional. So you had the rave culture, but then you had the indie culture, and you had the grunge culture, and you, so you created... Suddenly there were all these sub-categories, whereas if you, if you reflect back to the 60s, you had the hippie movement. You go into the 70s, you had the punk movement. You go into the 80s, and then into the late 80s, after the new romance had been and gone as quickly as we could get it to, and you had the rave movement, indie movement, grunge movement, this, this, the technology changed what youth culture looked like. And so here we are as the people of God in the middle of that, and we have to say, well, how are we, how are we going to respond? And so uh, some friends of mine and I responded by saying, well, let's get in among them, and let's be part of that, and let us try and reshape what uh, this is all about from the inside out. Let us try and rechange the landscape. And I think this is always one of the questions probably pioneers ask that is slightly by faith and slightly by curiosity, if I'm really honest, is can God be the same God that he is if you rock up to church on Sunday morning when you're, it's three in the morning and you're in the middle of nowhere and you know, there are pit bulls snapping around your heels and weird things going on around you and you're trying to sort of be polite about the person of Jesus to somebody or you're trying to, you know, can, is God real in that environment is what I'm saying. And uh, a, a long story short was, um, for us, yes, he was very real. And um, there, there was people like ourselves and many others and Johnny was involved with that and so on, that, that um, helped to kind of energise hope to show that God was for young people, he was among young people, and that if we uh, did away with some of the sort of uh, rules and regulations by which we had uh, defined how we uh, care for young people and nurture their spirituality, there was the possibility that these people could really find a, a living faith in Christ and go on to discover what their calling and vocation was. Um, and we found that to be so. So I was, uh, you can ask me more about that later, but that's certainly involved with that world and then that world evolved into a, a critique really of the church in terms of asking itself the question, are we so isolated in our practice even in our mission and our evangelism, that um, we have no real hope of uh, expressing uh, the person of God to people except in a sort of programmatic way. And that really was a question that came out of some, I want to say idiot, but we might find out you know them, and I, I don't know them, so I don't want to suggest they are. But somebody said this, they c coined the 90s, the decade of evangelism, and cursed us all for the next 10 years as we discovered that actually, uh, with the technology revolution that had taken place, we, we were pretty clueless about evangelism and mission per se. But in that environment, 
again, we are able to critique what is God trying to say? What are we trying to do here? Who are we trying to be? What should the church look like in this environment? Use that word said earlier. How do we shape the future? And then put our lives in line to do something about that. And the way that we went about that was to set up a, uh, uh, a business in the uh, area that we lived uh, that basically was a nightclub that uh, interacted particularly with the university and the Arts Institute of the area and uh, looked to be a bridge to the world at large and the community that existed at the time met in the same space. But more than that, or as we quickly discovered, and this is one of the key lessons of pioneering, it was about not so much how do we shape other people's worldview and what is faith, but how God was going to shape ours and what is faith. And out of that came a whole quest for a, what I would now call a mission spirituality that uh, is contemporary and interactive with the world in which it lives, as opposed to just embracing ritual or tradition that might uh, alone, and so by that I'm saying not, it's not in and of itself unhelpful, but alone would not be enough for us to be the people of God in its broadest, most ecumenical sense to the world at large. So I was involved with that. That was interesting. And then probably the, the more recent one was a critique of what we would probably call today capitalism and empire and how that has affected the church and how we behave in church and what we think about God and our worldview and what do we do to create an alternative to that to energize hope um, to the world around us and particularly my world right now which is Earlsfield and this is where the partnership with Jonathan has been so creative just to name but one story, the story where we sort of began, uh, was I approached Jonathan and asked him if we could farm some land that was part of the church around St Andrews. And he very graciously said yes, and so we took a year to experiment, basically turning it into a community lo allotment. And a long story short is we're now at a stage where... Um, not only are we using that produce to, uh, we, we give it away to a, a group every week uh, uh, that uh, take care of refugees in Wandsworth, but we also um, do some cooking and making of food for other people in the neighbourhood. Uh, uh, but the most exciting thing is setting up this cookery workshop for which we managed to get a grant through Jonathan um, to uh, look at food and the nature of food sacramentally as it relates to faith and spirituality and uh, as we speak we have six uh, Afghani teenagers uh, average age of 15 who are meeting at my home uh, we hope it's going to become a monthly uh, occasion where we meet with them and reciprocally I might add we learn about each other's foods, we help them because most of them are living on a budget of £10 a week for their food, um, how they can use the allotment 
produce, but also budget better. And in the process, we talk about culture, and we talk about faith, uh, and we talk about um, reciprocally learning from each other. And um, it's a creative way, I believe, of critiquing a capitalist mindset that is consumer-driven, that says we individualise everything and privatise everything and make everything about the fact that I can basically eat whatever I want because even if I don't have the money for what I want, I can go into debt to have it. And then you meet a, an Afghan teenager who's basically trekked from Afghanistan to England by hook or by crook and with many stories to tell on the way, and you get a different view as to what it means to survive and to live and how to be creative and give hope to that life, to say you matter and you can belong and there is hope for you. So that's kind of the endeavour that I'm involved with and, and, and right up to the, um, to the uh, sort of present day, the other thing that I've chosen to do with my family is to be part of five families that are intentionally living in a neighbourhood to say how can we creatively be resourceful in a different way as a people, how can we live prayerfully with one another and how can we missionally engage and give that away uh, to the area around us. So there's three areas certainly from my uh, story that I would say have had some involvement along with others about and what it means to be a pioneer in Brueggemann's terms to critique and energise, to critique what is and then to find the ways by which we can create or energise hope for transformation.